Matthew chapter 4 in your Bibles this morning, if you would. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to go over some, a very simple passage this morning. It would almost seem too simple for a BCM chapel. But uh, the challenge actually is one that I gave years ago to the returning, well, to the, um, to the leadership that had come back early, as we have them do. And we were up in the Heritage Center, and I had a session with them, and God laid this particular passage on my heart. So uh, I gave just a challenge, just a simple thing. And afterwards, an uh, upper-class young lady came up to me, and I can still remember she was right in front of me. Her eyes were as big as saucers. And uh, obviously, she had interacted with the, the truth of the text, and something had happened in her. And she said, you have to preach this in chapel. And um, so whatever year or two after that, I, the Lord finally gave me freedom to do that. And I did that a number of years ago and hadn't it's really since. So the Lord really led me to it again this time. It's a, a truth that has been uh, uh, really tremendous in my own heart, as simple as it is. It's interesting what Pastor said uh, about... And uh, Andy Stanley and what's there. I, I wanted to open with an illustration here that um, Ken Ham gave uh, about a month ago. He published an article uh, from Answers in Genesis, and, and the article, the essence of it, was that uh, some, some individual who was identifying as a trans person was particularly discouraged, and they posted something online that he saw, and and uh, he took it and put it in his article. And it turned out that this trans person was really discouraged one day, really, really sad. So they decided to get some comfort, to get some help. They would turn to chat GPT. You're familiar with that. And they asked, this person asked this artificial intelligence to produce for them a Bible passage. And in this Bible passage, they wanted some comfort from God about the decision of their life. And this is what ChatGPT came up with. And a woman whose heart was divided between spirit and body came before him. In quiet despair, she asked, Lord... I come to you estranged, for my spirit and body are not one. How shall I hope to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus looked upon her with kindness, replying, My child, blessed are those who strive for unity within themselves, for they shall know the deepest truths of my Father's creation. Be not afraid, for in the kingdom of God there is no man nor woman, as all are one spirit. The gates of my Father's kingdom will open for those who love and are loved. For God looks not upon the body, but upon the heart. Blessed are those who strive for unity within themselves, for they shall know the deepest truths of my Father's creation. 
Is that where you'll discover the deepest truths of the Father? Can you hear the hiss of the serpent? It sounds eerily similar in principle, at least, to what the serpent said to Eve. Your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as gods. But you know, honestly, now, we obviously are. You're stunned by that, and you should be. But you know, we have the tendency to kind of do the same thing. We come to the truth of God's word. I don't know, maybe, maybe in our devotions, maybe in a, a message, maybe somebody just comes and says, here, you ought to consider this verse. And it might be with regard to some, something you're doing or something you're saying or some, something, something that God is really trying to reach you with and we don't like it. Other times like that, I don't like it. I don't like what I'm hearing. And yet we, we know that there's deliverance in the word of God. You know that, right? That's how you were born again. With the washing of water by the word. You realize that if a person were to come to you and have good counsel, good words, it's easier to reject than when the Spirit of God speaks into your heart. And we should allow him to do so. Sometimes we don't. We don't like it. We turn somewhere else for wisdom. Sometimes that's just from to within. Well, I don't agree. I don't believe that. And consequently, we are not uh, delivered. In Matthew chapter 4, we're just going to start here. This is kind of an introduction to this. And that illustration to me, when I saw that, I thought, you know, that is kind of a warning that we need to go to the word of God and get what we need and trust it. Because humanism which we can derive on our own, is deadly. And there's death behind it. Matthew chapter 4, the end of it, gives us the introduction to 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus now, at the beginning of his ministry, is bringing to Israel truths that honestly shouldn't have been new to them, but they were, so it seemed. And he began to speak to them. How many of you have been to Israel to the place of the Sermon on the Mount? Have you been there? Yeah, quite a few. Okay. Well, you know, there's other buildings now located there that we don't need to whatever. This church of that and church of this. But it is stunning to be in that location and to imagine again Jesus speaking to Israel. And look at, uh, look at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse de- diseases and torments and those which were possessed of devils and those which were lunatic and those that had the palsy and he healed them. And there followed him, now watch this, great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. 
You suppose there's a few people there? It is remarkable. The people now that have come to Jesus early in his ministry, and, and this is what, if you look at your Bibles, five, six, and seven. If you've got a red-lettered Bible, how much red letter is there? Five, six, and seven. Wow. Jesus spoke, and people listened. Now, they had been listening. Uh, I'm not saying to him, but to you know, their leadership, Pharisees and scribes and, you know, the big guys. But this was different, wasn't it? You know how we know it was different? Look at chapter 7. Look at the end of chapter 7. Look at verse 28. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority, exousia, and not as the scribes. The scribes were teaching them. But their teachings were hollow, humanistic. And what was he teaching? He was giving them his heart. They already had that. They, he'd already, they already had the Old Testament, right? What did the Old Testament say? Oh, many things. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than, do we always see it that way? What person comes to you and gives you a verse? You know, I think you need this verse. What do you do with that verse then? Is it sweeter than honey then? Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. You know the scribes weren't teaching that. Somehow they missed that. The law was a bunch of do's and don'ts, and it was a big, big rule book. That's all it was. And here Christ shows up, and he gives them, no, no, here's my heart. Here's what I meant. And they are blown away. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. If we do not heed his word. We extinguish the lamp for our lives. Let's go back to Matthew here, and uh, I want to go to our text now in chapter 7. All of that to say, this is a very simple message. And, uh, and it may not initially be, wow, I, that's, that's encouraging. It may not be, but it's what we need. And it is encouraging, and there's great reward in it. And it's a lamp into our feet, if we would just abide it and, uh, and live it. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to look at these five verses here. In Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, did I say five? Seven, Matthew 7, verse 1, in a message I've entitled, Spiritual Triage. Judge not that ye be not judged. 
For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then, thou sh- then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. The judging here of uh, verses 1 and 2 is many times misunderstood. Definitely it means don't be condescending. Okay, But I want to show you something. The same word there, krino, that is, uh, is judge, is, was found earlier in the same sermon here in chapter 5 and verse 40. Let's go there. Chapter 5 and verse 40. And we're going to see the same word here that was translated judge in uh, chapter 7 twice. Now is in chapter 5 verse 40. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Can you find the word judge in there? Crino? Sue thee at the law. It's the same thing as judge in the other one. It's the same word. What does that mean? Okay, well, it means this. If any man will sue thee at the law. Now, again, these people are listening to this and they are just blown away. They are just, the word astonished, by the way, is always translated either astonished or amazed. But at the root of that word, at the end of chapter 7, when they were just, it literally means to flatten. To flatten. Which kind of is that, that word that we say then, I'm just absolutely blown away. It would be the idea that if somebody come up and just whap, and you're just laid out on the floor. That's the idea. And that's what, that's, they, when they heard these three chapters of what Jesus said, it's like they were all laying on the ground looking up. I, I don't what did he say? I, what, what just happened? It was so different for them. And yet somehow, for many of them, their spirit is bearing witness with the spirit of God that he's right. You know he's right? That's good stuff. But I've never heard that before. Now in chapter 5 and verse 40... Jesus had earlier mentioned about this judging idea that uh, somebody might even want to, as they look at their relationship with you, they realize that you've bested them. You have more than I. You got something that I need. You got something that belongs to me in our relationship. And so they take you to court to do what? To fix it. To bring it even. Like that. Pastor talked about the balances on Sunday. And that's the idea. Our, in our relationship, it's, it's tipped. And it's not in my favor. Is it ever? Anyway. Okay, so in this case, in chapter 5, verse 40, that were judges, they sue you at the, at the law to bring it back. They take, your, they take that coat back, which apparently means it belongs to them. Under Armour, L.L. Bean, there it is. 
We're bringing it back there. That belongs to me. The law says, you're right. Give it back to them. And things are brought back to even. Judge not that you be not judged. The idea is, is that what you're after in your relationships? I've been wronged. I've been offended. That wasn't the right thing to do. That wasn't the right thing to say. There's an offense. The scales have tipped and they're not in my favor. We need to fix that. That's got to be made right. And so there, there we are, concerned all the while of watching the scales and getting the weights. We got a little grain of sand. We add that. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. Look at it. It's close. In all our relationships, that's what we're after. You ever been offended? Anybody ever do you wrong? You have any siblings? Lauren? Just checking. You ever been done wrong? In the, he's going to go on in his teaching in chapter 7 to call that like a chunk of wood in the eye. Well, you know, a sliver, a moat, right? You got wood in your eye. It's just uh, symbolic for offenses. You got an issue. Buddy, you got problems. And they bother me, like you're bothering me. You got issues. You see, this doesn't work for Jeremiah because his brother's a Christian. <laughs> well, he is, isn't he? Yeah, okay. Well, does anybody else have a brother that's a Christian? I don't know. He's got a... You can ask him about it later. The rest of us, we got issues. We got wood in our eyes. Look around. Look at all the wood. And it hurts. And it bothers. Chapter 7, verse 1, you got a decision to make. Okay. Do you know that Jesus doesn't deny that there's motes in their eyes? Look at this. He says in verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote, notice this, that is in thy brother's eye? It's there. He didn't say you're wrong. He didn't say, you know, you're looking for something that's not there. It is your roommate. Right. You know it. You're not wrong. They got an issue. Yeah. They do. Look around the student bodies. Are there moats out there? How many moats? Do we have wood in our eyes? You know, we focus on that. I'm a visual kind of guy. We focus on it. Like, we need to go get it. That's what he said. And why behold us? Why are you focused on those moats? Because they're there, and they bother me. So I'm going to go get them. There it is. That roommate... I got it, right there. That sibling, it's right there. You can see it, can't you? That, uh, I don't know, that person back home, they got issues. 
Drive down into Milwaukee. They got issues too. All right. It's there. We all have moats. And you have a decision to make. Is that what you're going to be focused on? Those moats. Jesus has another idea. But he says here in the second verse that if that's what concerns you, then that's what's going to concern others about you. Do you realize that in your life, and we, we think of ourselves fairly highly, this is a natural thing, that's a default. Proverbs says every way of a man is right in his own eyes. So in essence, we're the only one without a moat, but we can see everybody else's. You can. You can see them. <laughs> you can see them. How can you not see them? I wish they would stop it. Or I wish they would start it, like picking up their stuff. Wow. What a mess. Look around. But do you realize from somebody else's perspective, you are in the mix of the people who have the moat. Not from our perspective. We're clean. We have clear sight. We're in the right. We're good. You know what I did? I actually have all. I got them all. This is all the BCM moats. <laughs> they are. You got to like it. I gathered them all up. We are moatless now. <laughs> there they are. Wow. Where's Moya? I can see it. <laughs> Let's just say that that right there are all the moats of all your relationships. Your family, your mom and dad. There they are. You can see them. Is that your focus? Jesus is trying to give those Jews, and now us, a different focus, a new reality, one that will change our lives. If we would but listen, if we would but learn, we're so focused on that. Why beholdest thou the moat? Others are going to look at you the way that you're looking at them. You know that... Uh, H.A. Ironside relayed a story once of a man named Bishop Potter. He was sailing for Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. When he went on board, he found, that another trans, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. After going to see the accommodations, he came up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his watch, a gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily, he never availed himself of that privilege, but... He had been to his cabin and had met the man who would occupy the other berth. Judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he might not be a very trustworthy person. And so he uh, dropped these things, these valuables off to the purser. The purser accepted the responsibility for the value, valuables and remarked, It's all right, Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here already and left his for the same reason. Some of you didn't get that. <laughs> that judgment is coming back. What you sow, you reap. 
Let's look in uh, Matthew chapter 5 here, or 7, rather, I keep saying 5, at, uh, at what Christ does want us to see. What our motivations are in verses 1 and 2 will lead us to what we focus on in verse 3. Lead us to what we focus on. And what our motivations are actually then lead us in verse 4 to what we say. How wilt thou say to thy brother... Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye. Let me pull. You know, I just happen to have. I need a volunteer. Yeah, right, Santiago. Listen, your little sister would like you to have your sight when you get home. What did Jesus say? And behold, a beam is in thine own eye. It is remarkable, and the truth of this is that Jesus does not say to us that we have a mote in our eye. He says, oh, there's moats out there. My roommate has a moat, right. My dad has a moat, sure does. Mom, yeah, siblings, right. It's in there. There it is. Everybody in your relationships. But you, you have a beam. We don't see it that way. We don't live in our dorm room like that. We don't interact with our siblings that way. (laughs) They have the beams. I'm fine. He said, you have a beam. I need a beam. Shouldn't we have a beam? Is that not what he said? Is that not what the Bible says? You're unsure of yourself. What are we focused on? Right here. He said, what, and what do you have? That is not the way we live our lives. We're not in that reality. How many of you think that someday you, you will be involved in marriage counseling. How many? Go ahead. (laughs) Do you know the truth is? Probably all of you will be. Probably all of you. Are you ready? No. Brother Ocado, maybe. Okay, sure. (laughs) The rest of you, you need some more time. Let me tell you what happens in marriage counseling. Two folk come in because one of them or both of them have said, we need help. Oh, boy, we need help. And when they arrive you're going to realize they're right. You know, they need help. And they're seated there, and there's a variety of different circumstances, sure, but they're essentially pretty close to similar. You know what? They'd, they'd really be solved with this, these five verses. But there they are. You turn to the one, you say, okay, what, tell me from your perspective what's going on, what's going on. And they, let's say they describe an event. Well, here's what happened just the other day. And he said this, and he didn't say that, and he, he, he did that, and he wouldn't say this, and he, he wouldn't stop that, and it just goes on. And what's she doing? Just like this. He's trying to make it right. And you say, okay, all right, well, that's helpful. Appreciate that very much. And uh, you turn to the other party there. They're there. And you say, okay, from your perspective, and guess what they're doing? 
Guess, you know, right? They're looking at each other's moats. And he's over there going, well, that's not exactly what happened. And it's not, she didn't, she left out this part. And he's trying to get it the other way because both her scales are tipped in the opposite directions. They're focused on each other's moats. Do you think he turns to her right there in the office and says, you know, she's exactly right. It's unbelievable. I can't believe how I've acted. It's terrible. How can you put up with me? How have you put up with me? I am so sorry. Please forgive me. If that ever happens, you're going to go home and you're going to be able to eat supper and it's going to be hot still. (laughs) But that isn't what happens and you're going to have a cold meal. You're not going to be an effective biblical counselor if you sit there and try to help them get their scales up to even. When's that going to happen? It's not going to happen. Young person, in your own relationships, if all you're trying to do is make everything whole, it's not going to happen. Forget it. Some things might improve. They might get a little better for a while. You might get beyond something. But it's always there. Stuck. Another circumstance arises and we're back, right back to square one. How'd that happen? Because all we're trying to do is judge things back to even. Look how Jesus, in medical terms, <laughs> describes this triage. If somebody walked into uh, uh, an urgent care facility or an emergency room and they're going, it's in there, I know it is, you've got to get it's a lot of pain. Sure, of course it is. But if they've got this sticking out of their head, what do you think? <laughs> Who's going to be helped first? Triage. You don't even have a medical degree. You can figure it out. No, I mean, it's, it's, that eye is really hurting. I think we'd better get him in there. You? You just sit over here for a while. <laughs> Did Jesus not say that there is a beam in your eye? That's a beam. There's your eyeball. That would hurt. Not only that, it would really bother your eyesight. Like, how can you see to help your friend? How can you see to help your friend when you got this thing? Not to mention every time you turn him around, you whack him on the head with it. <laughs> this is so simple. Honestly, you could take this down to the three-year-olds. They'd get it like right now. Right now. They'd get it. They'd understand it. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. It'll change the way that you interact with others. Rather than be condescending, hey, they got an issue. Of course they got an issue. Do you have issues? Oh, yeah. Oh, ever seen my issues? Right. You'd go in there and say, hey, listen, that's nothing. You, unbelievable what I've been through, what God's done in my own life. And look what Jesus says. Thou hypocrite. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye. It's there. You're a hypocrite if you don't do it. That means... You know what that means? Hypocrite. It means you're a fake. You're a play actor. Right. 
you're a hypocrite. And from what he says there, you can't even see clearly. Do you know what the ultimate goal of this passage is? It isn't to get all the wood out of the eye. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. What is the ultimate goal of verses 1 through 5? The ultimate end. Daniel. Is it just to get the beam out of your eye? No. Then thou shalt see clearly. To do what? To be a blessing to others. Then, and only then, if you're not willing to tackle that part, if you're not willing, I put a handle on it so it would be easier. (laughs) Do you know what? Your beam's got a handle on it too. Grab it. The word here is ekbalo. You know what that means? Throw it out of your eye. That is what it means. Grab a hold of that thing and cast it away from you. Deal with it. Don't cover it. Don't excuse it anymore. I've got issues. Okay, okay. You say, how do I know if I have a beam in my eye in any given situation, in any relationship? Are you irritated? You got a beam. Oh, I'm not irritated. I'm just burdened. (laughs) You still have a beam. Same beam. It's there. I'm not burdened. I'm frosted. Okay, you got a beam. Whatever. You've got a beam. Jesus said first. Highest priority. Spiritual triage. If If you're getting frustrated with anybody in your your realm of influence, anybody. You say, but they're wrong. I know they're wrong. They've got a moat in their eye. Is that a surprise? Is that like a big surprise? People around me have moats. People around me are wrong. For all have sinned and come short. All we like sheep have gone astray. Is that like a huge surprise? Don't you realize you're in there with them? But that's not how we live our lives. We stand on the high ground. We, we're fine. Look, my eyesight is perfect. I can see clearly. <laughs> That's not what Jesus said. You'll have deliverance when you go with what he says. That's when you'll be delivered. 2006 in Iraq was the Battle of Ramadi. A city about um, an hour and 15 minutes drive straight west of Baghdad. Terrorists had taken over the city. And uh, the Americans were, and their Iraqi allies, were out. And it was time to take back the city. Iraqi forces, friendly to the United States. United States Army, Marines, and Navy SEALs went in to take back that city. And it was quite a battle. The story is told of a particular mission on a given day where four Navy SEAL platoons went out before the sun came up very early. Two of those platoons were sniper platoons. They placed themselves in buildings up high 
They got eyesight on the ground and the streets around them, alleyways, whatever. So they could provide covering fire for the mostly Iraqi forces that would come in to the sector and begin to go uh, building by building, clearing out the terrorists. It was. It was going to be a bad day, and they knew it. It was all planned out very well. United States Army, Marines, friendly Iraqi forces being guided by yet more Navy SEALs and the Navy SEALs that were in the buildings. And it was all planned, right down to the minutes. As the the sun came up and the things unfolded, it just came apart. Insurgents came out of buildings everywhere. And the fog of war sets in, which is who's who and what are we doing and who we shooting at, and yet you have to know. Later in the day, as it happened, uh, a friendly force of Iraqi army trained and provisioned by the United States, got out of their zone. And they encroached in a zone that they weren't supposed to be in. And they're attacking buildings that it's not time and it's not the right, this isn't right. And they came into contact with a Navy SEAL sniper team. Neither side knew it. But there was a firefight, Navy SEALs versus friendly Iraqi forces. Of course, the friendly Iraqi forces have 50 caliber machine guns, M2 fighting Bradley vehicles, and neither can dislodge the other. Both are bewildered by the fact that, wow, if these were really Iraqi insurgents, they would have run a long time ago. And they're radioing in, and they're saying, ah, we're up against the enemy here, and both sides are radioing in, wow, these guys are really tough, this is hardcore stuff. And and, uh, in the midst of that battle, the Navy SEAL commander, who was back at headquarters, decided about a mile away, drove down there to see what was going on. And as he looked at the situation, he wondered, they're a little close to where I think one of our Navy SEAL sniper teams is. They're a little too close. I wonder if. By that time, there were wounded soldiers. A 50 caliber machine gun round had come through the wall at the Navy sniper team and uh, had, had wounded him in the face, a Navy SEAL. There were several Iraqi friendly forces down on the ground. One of them was dead. when the Navy SEAL commander determined this is a friendly fire incident. It is, he said, the worst thing that can happen in battle, period, hands down. It's bad enough to spend a day fighting against the enemy and even having your comrades die, but when you're fighting against each other, nothing is worse. He said it is career-ending. If you're the one to blame, it's over. You will be relieved of command. It's done. I want to read to you the account of what happened afterwards. There was an inquisition. The Navy SEAL's commanding unit emailed 
the commander on site and said, stop all operations till we get there. We want to know what went wrong. And that day, the local commander of the Navy SEALs walked into a room like this. I walked into the platoon space where everyone was gathered to debrief. The silence was deafening. The commanding officer, his commander, sat in the front row. The command master chief stood ominously in the back. The seal that had been wounded in the face by a 50 caliber round was there. His face was bandaged up. I stood before the group. Whose fault was this? I asked to the room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the SEAL who had mistakenly engaged and killed the Iraqi soldier spoke up. It was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. No, responded the commander of that unit there on the ground. He's, he responded, it wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked the group again. It was my fault, said the radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position on to friendly elements sooner. Wrong, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked again. It was my fault, said another SEAL, who was a combat advisor with the Iraqi army. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You're not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it had contributed to the failure and the death of a man, but I had heard enough. You know whose fault this is? You know who gets the blame for this? The entire group sat there in silence, including the commanding officer who'd flown in and the command master chief and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, there is only one person to blame for this, me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. As the senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. There is no one to blame but me. I am... And he said, I will tell you this right now. I will make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. It was a heavy burden to bear, but, I was, but it was absolutely true. I was the leader. I was in charge. I was responsible. Thus, I had to take ownership of everything that went wrong. Despite the tremendous blow to my reputation, to my ego, it was the right thing to do, the only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded seal explaining that it was my fault he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation piece by piece, identifying everything that happened and what we could do going forward to prevent it from happening again. Looking back, it is clear that despite what happened, the full ownership I took of the situation actually increased the trust that my commanding officer and master chief had in me. If I had tried to pass the blame onto others, I suspect I would have been fired. You say, well, I'm not a commanding officer. Of your life, you have the steering wheel. You have the reins. Jesus is telling you, and only you, look at your own beam, 
take a hold of it and cast it out. What are you waiting for? It feels really good to look at other people's moats. It feels somehow very satisfying to recognize that people have issues. Makes us feel better about ourselves. All the while. I remember years ago, years ago, sitting in my study, irritated about a certain person when I was in the pastorate. This had gone on for a few days. I was, I was frosted. Whatever that means, that was me. In closing, let me just explain this to you from Romans chapter 2. Just turn there with me real quick and we're done. Romans chapter 2. I was in my study. I sat down to have my devotions that morning. This nagging problem, this person that just didn't get it. I sat down to have my devotions. This is is an absolute true story. I turned to the passage that was up next. This is the passage I was going to sit at. I opened my Bible to this text and read these words. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do these such things, and doest the same that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, or despisest thou the riches or of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day uh, of wrath. And revelation of the righteousness, judgment of God. Now, in the context, it's talking about the sins of chapter 1. But on that day, God was dealing with my being. I couldn't believe it. It cut like a knife through everything. Suddenly, I could see clearly. It was my problem, not somebody else's. And I was free. I was free. And it didn't take any time. And I didn't have to sleep it off. And not a week to go by. I was free. I got right. And it was glorious. How about it, student? Are you worried about somebody else's moats? Jesus' words. And considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye.